John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 121.PR2705, certificate number 36906, Lem Billings. Lem? Hello? Where are you? Oh, hi. I'm, uh, I missed my damn plane, so I'm going to have to shoot up to Boston and back to Boston. Oh, I see. Well, I'm still, doesn't look like I may be able to go there. Oh, go at all? That's right. Okay, guys, I, I guess it's not going too well, huh? Oh, yeah. You're a big fan of the work of John F. Kennedy, I'm guessing. His work? Yeah. Just, you know, his whole catalog. Like, like the book PT-109? <laughs> Love it. Have you read uh, PT-109? I actually have not. I have not read Profiles in Courage or any of the other work of Kennedy or his speechwriters. Yeah. Oh, they're great stories. Probably. What he, he, a boy's he, own adventure. He swam around uh, with a, uh, eating coconuts out of the Pacific for, for six months. Yeah, he did a... Um, this is my vague idea, the end of PT-109. He did a... Uh, uh, who, who was the... Uh, Jack LaLanne. He did a Jack LaLanne where he, he tied his boat uh, to a rope and then he swam through the ocean with four guys on his back and... I prefer sailors whose boats didn't sink. Oof! I feel like you can just turn that around to like put down any military hero. Yeah. It's pretty tough. Pretty tough talk from a from a non-soldier. I think it's fairly common, if not universally understood, that uh, that John Kennedy suffered from a lot of physical maladies. Um, have, have we gone too far in that direction? Like, because now that's the you know you hear about that so much as the revisionist version of Kennedy that he couldn't even stand up from his rocking chair without. Um, wincing in pain right and being injected with uh, methamphetamines and so forth have we gone too far the other way i mean he was still playing football or, or you know touch football with his brothers but they they all they all wanted to hurt him you know <laughs> this is perfect are you saying that's why the kennedys played touch football so, yeah so they could hurt each other but why did he want to play well because it was a time when uh you weren't supposed to show your weakness ken mm. you know these days you want to you want to put your put your um, injuries forward. But, but at the time... It helps. It helps get rid of the stigma around whatever thing you have or would like to have. Yeah, that's right. But at the at the time, you were meant to be hale and hearty despite all evidence to the contrary. And John Kennedy suffered from youth with a lot of different maladies. Like having a terrible father. Well, you know, depending... 
he's a terrible father, but he got his son elected president and his other son, well, they were all murdered, except for Teddy. Not murdered. Not murdered. Self, that one was self-inflicted. The one thing you can say about Ted Kennedy, not murdered. It's weird that it says it on his tombstone, I've always thought. I mean, Joe Kennedy was a Nazi apologist. Sure. And a bootlegger. Yeah, wasn't he, uh, wasn't he was like a, uh, what did you call it, appeasement guy? And yeah. when he was a court of St. James, when he was the UK ambassador before the war? Yeah, he was a, he was a, a both sides are. A both sides are <laughs> of Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, he taught both sides of the controversy. But in this story, actually, Joe Kennedy uh, comes across as somewhat of a nice guy. Oh, if we're going to we're, this Joe, is one, Joe Kennedy apologism today. On this Omnibus. is one of those where you you have to look at the man uh, in his in his fullness and not just dismiss him for being a Nazi apologist, a bootlegger, and an abusive father. People are complicated. Yes, I mean it is a tricky thing about history is that you know people are complicated. And you have to say, well, you know, his neighbors said he was great. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, before he started the Gestapo or, or whatever it is, you know. You, he was a quiet guy. We never thought he would kill all those people. I mean, I guess I don't know. It depends on what it's in service of. Yeah. You know, so, sometimes I think we all recognize that even monsters are nice to their kids sometimes. And that's, this is an example of that. I, uh, uh, Joe Kennedy will be entered into the omnibus and into the history books as kind of a monster. But in this case, he makes a cameo appearance. Mm. Who, who, who do you think should play him? Uh, Joe Kennedy. Uh, I, I think John, John, uh, I don't know what he looked like. Well, he, is he good looking like his kids? N- n- no. Um, so it's not like let's get a let's get a, a silver fox uh, Dennis Quaid guy to play him in the movie. No, I think oh, um, yeah, it's an Edward Herman type, someone what? balding. I think John Lithgow should play him. Oh yeah, he's a he's Lithgowian, although John Lithgovian. Lith, Lithgovian. But I think John Lithgow may be too old now to play a young Joe Kennedy. Well, he might be too old even to no. I mean, he did live to be eighty-one, right? Which okay. might be about Lithgow's age today. He's he's getting up there, right? John Lithgow's 76. Oh, okay. He still has five years left in which he can credibly play Joe Kennedy. And I, if you're John Lithgow, I bet you're aware of this every day. The clock is ticking. <laughs> what uh, wh- what year did Joe Kennedy die? I think that that uh, bears on our story. 1969. Oh, okay. So he, he saw the moon landing and was like, "I'm I'm out." You know, Lithgow is a is a young youngish seventy six, so I think he probably could play uh, Father Joe for for part, if not all, of this story. There is a convention now that actors can play older historical characters. Sorry, can play historical characters for whom they are too old. Yeah, just because people tended to age faster back then with their, right. what with their yellow tobacco stained teeth and with a little CGI. John Lithgow could yeah. play a twenty. He could play Han Solo. Let's smooth him out. Let's have weird blurring under his eyes in every scene where he appears. <laughs> the better to re- actually represent the youthful vigor of Joseph P. Kennedy. Joe Kennedy. Uh, we've probably spent more time on him than well, certainly at any previous point in the omnibus, and maybe this is uh, the most he'll ever get. Although, High watermark. Although we might we might investigate we might interrogate some other aspects of his his life and times. You celebrate his whole catalog. Not his whole catalog. Not uh, the Nazi part. Not the Nazi part. Uh, but he was, uh, 
he was very nice to the protagonist of our story, Lem Billings. Um, Lem was uh, Jack Kennedy's roommate and friend in prep school. At They met at Choate. I was about to say, was it Choate? Yes. Met at Choate in 1933. Choate is a, uh, uh, for those futurelings for whom most of the United States, the, most of the previous United States is underwater, um, Choate was in the former state of Connecticut. Do you think the prep schools are still there in the far future? The only prep Choate schools are, are the ones that are still in, uh, that were in the Rocky Mountains or maybe, <laughs> maybe in uh, the Green Mountains of Vermont. But they didn't put prep schools there. That's where they put the play, the military schools where you send your misbehaving oh, kids. Right. I think there are a couple of like hippie prep schools up there, but, mm. but yeah. Oh yeah. I know. I know one in Vermont. Yeah, exactly. So the, the ones in the mountains, but I think Connecticut's all the way underwater by the time this by the time the platinum discs that this show is recorded on finally get replayed after the octopuses uh, get opposable tentacles. So all the parts of all the football tossing parts of the Northeast we're about to mention are uh, are now part of a coral reef. Yeah, long gone. Um, they they met at Choate. Lem was actually there on a scholarship, although he came from a from a prominent. Eastern family. His mother was a Mayflower descendant. His uh, his great grandfather actually was a was a a well known abolitionist. Had they hit on? Had they fallen on hard times? It was the nineteen thirty three. If you recall, was uh, the not gr- that old. The but... Great Depression, mm. and they had lost. His father was a physician, and they'd lost their money. But Lem um, Lem was at Choate already. He was. He was in his third year. It turns out that waspy connections can survive they can. even a even a, a global economic catastrophe. That's right. It, it still, you know, to the manner born, still bears out at this point in time. Um, Jack is a year younger, and they meet uh, and become fast friends. And Lem, by all accounts, six foot two, hale and hardy. He had eyes of blue. He was on the crew team. He was a real hunk. And you mentioned earlier that how uh, how we think of the Kennedys as being, you know, really handsome, um, and I think that that might actually be a collective delusion. I agree. Every time someone normal looking plays Kennedy in a movie, you think, "Well, that guy looks normal, not like a Kennedy." Yeah, and, and we think of you have the weird Kennedy mouth is, and the weird kind of sunken eyes. Yeah, and, he was always the most handsome president until Obama. He was just young. Yeah, this is something that happens right. to me every day is I can no longer tell if people are actually attractive or if they're just 27. Yeah, right. And that's the thing. When you look back at pictures of yourself when you're 27 and you're like, wait a minute, I did. I thought I was such a like a, a bag of dirty look, laundry. Look how but, good I look. Yeah, I was But what so I'm handsome. saying is that's actually the illusion. You are not, you were not actually handsome. No, You I were was. just 20 uh, years younger. So. Personally, I was handsome. You 27. were. 26. Well, but, but, you know, the person looking at, you know, you're just looking at it from... From an, you know your current decrepitude, yeah, and you think, wow, I'll, I'll take that. Well, and even the ones that say, oh, Jack Kennedy, he had great hair. I don't even think it was that great. Wow, wow, yeah, that's what I'm going to stand on that ground. Coming in hot, I'm going to die on that hill. Well, if you die put, on that knoll, if you put Jack Kennedy next to Lem Billings, that's when you Ke- really Kennedy looks. They would he would look like Igor. Yeah, <laughs> Kennedy is smaller and 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 really you know kind of fragile looking. Lem Billings looks like uh, John Hamm, basically. If John Hamm were blonde, mm. um, Lem Billings is just conventionally handsome 
and he was athletic, although asthmatic. He was, you know, a, a, a real sort of strapping guy. And they became super tight. Uh, Lem, although he was um, an athlete and, and a, a big man on campus, also had a prankster's nature, uh, a great sense of humor, and rebelled a little bit at the convention, uh, the, the conventions of Choate. Kennedy, of course, a famous sort of prankster. It helps to be rich if you're going to. Everyone's like, ha ha ha. Yeah. George Clooney put a fish in my in my uh, ventilation duct. <laughs> if that's not George Clooney doing that, you're going to call the cops. Yeah, exactly. Like, who put the tuna fish in the toilet tank? It was George Clooney. Oh, what a nut. And that was true of Kennedy, too, right? He was. Um, I don't think I knew this. He did pranks, huh? He did pranks. He. he he was arguably like kind of a hilarious Holden Caulfield type in prep school. Partly, I think, because he he didn't even really want to be there. His father, you know, kept kind of pushing him, and 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 so he, I'm thinking that maybe that this is just projection, but I'm thinking that in Billing's situation, you know, somebody who is, doesn't have as much money in his, as his classmates, this is somebody who has really perfected the um, how to be the gregarious sidekick and always have the always have the funny quip and keep all the richer kids in a good mood. And that's probably served him very well. Yeah. He was an artistic guy and, and, uh, and they actually Kennedy and Billings formed a little, uh, like a club, secret club or a, or a dead poet society, a little gang called the muckers. And they mm. were always up to no good and wearing funny hats. And you know, it was the thirties. So you didn't, you wouldn't, didn't want to go too far. Um, but Billings became, uh, so close with with John right away. They met in the in You're the fall, fall thirty three. Sorry, Jack. You know, I was I was at a family reunion this weekend, and I was reminded, as I always am at those reunions, by the last remaining people who were alive in the sixties, that as a child I was called John John, and they all called me John John until, although some of them called me John Morgan, but it, I always had a. I was never John. And this was post JFK Jr., right? Yeah. And so the John John ones, uh, well, I had a I had a uh, an uncle this weekend say, you know why we called you John John? And I was like, yeah. You used to wear little short shorts and salute? I did. Short shorts, white shoes. I saluted everyone. And I was like, yeah, I think I know why, because of because of Kennedy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And I was like, wow, you fun know, fact. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And you called me John Morgan. Cause that's my middle name. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, the Kennedys had a, had, had were there a generation of Johns life. called John, John because of that? Or do you think, or was John, John a common name for a kid named John? I don't know. There were a lot of Johns in my family, but also my, my family were Kennedy admirers. And I, I, I think less Kennedy admirers than that. They believed that we were like the Kennedys. Although, not Catholic and not especially rich. We did have that waspy. I mean, Kennedy's again, not wasp, but we had, we, we aspired to being you were dynastic, a, a Hyannis port style thing. And so the John, John was just a little, I don't know why I had to carry the burden. Let me be, call me, call me. But you know, all the Johns in my family became Jack's mm-hmm. except for me. They never started calling me Jack. I wonder if it was the era, you know, the era of, you know, kind of the, the living memory of Jack being a good time name for a powerful 
presidential John was over. Yeah. Well, and also my uncle Jack lived to be 97. Right. So, so it was the, like, that happens in my family. There's too. always the Jack the confusion. Well, now wait a minute. What's the, what's the cute nickname in your family? Well, I'm the third Kenneth. Oh yeah. So, so you have who, to be Ken. Who's going to be Ken or Kenny or, you know, in the room. I was often little Kenny. If there was another Kenneth in the room. Can I start calling well you Well into Kenny? my 20s. I think we should only call me Little Kenny. Yeah, Little Kenny. I'm going to be announced that way on Jeopardy, I think. Little Kenny, here he is. This says that John oh. John 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 was never used by the Kennedy family. It was a reporter who misheard oh. President Kennedy saying, John, John, you know, and thought, oh, wait, they call him John John? John. When, in fact, he was just saying it twice. Twice. Your, your Kennedy is good, and I hope that we hear a lot of it on this uh, episode. I think I'm going to hold back. Anyway, Billings... Having only met uh, John John, no, the original John, Jack, having only met him uh, that fall, was invited to spend Christmas with the Kennedys in Palm Beach that very year. Oh, wow. Uh, 33. And he's, he's like a talented Mr. Ripley guy. He's, he's climbing that ladder in, in a matter of months. And his father died uh, right then, and he was basically adopted into the Kennedy family. Joe, Joe actually called him at one point my second son, although he had four of his own sons. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, who's he leaving off? I'm not sure. Well, you know, one died in the war. Maybe, and maybe he's Kenny. been second in order. So now he's the second of five. Right, because he's older than Jack. Yeah. So the second of, of five. Right. That's probably what it was. Because there was because there is one, you, you were just saying this, he had, Joe Jr. was his oldest son. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The one that should have been president. So maybe he means, yeah, that's what I hear. So maybe by second son, that is what he meant. Yeah. Like I would have had five and he would have, in order, would have been the second. I think you're right. Um, he was then, in, you know, he started to then va- vacation with the Kennedy family and kind of, you know, anytime Jack went home, Lem went with him. And at one point in Hyannisport, he, uh, he was taking a shower and there was a shower malfunction. Hello. Uh, and he was badly burned. I have to assume that what that the that the the regulator on the hot water failed, and he was scalded with hot water and like had to spend three weeks recuperating from this this terrible ah. shower injury. Is this an old money thing where you you know you're you're in a three hundred year old Cape Cod house and the, nothing works? Yeah, exactly. And the the hot water heater is heated with with uh, a coal fire or something and the water is boiling. Yeah. There's no way that I could get water that hot out of my hot water heater. No, no. But I, it, it sounds like he was, uh, he was sprayed with boiling water. And during his, um, during his recuperation, he became very close to the Kennedy daughters. Um, and you know, and I think they felt badly about having injured him and, Mm -hmm. and, we got a little Florence Nightingale syndrome. Yeah, and he uh, he Plays then was really adopt, uh, adopted into the family. Now you keep casting aspersions that he is a scammer, but I uh, my sense is that he was you know oh what a lonely boy and and very close just immediately close to Jack and the within the Kennedy family they said uh, Kennedy's mom Rose said that when Lem first arrived, he was one of Jack's surprises. And Jack Does was, that mean Jack had a history of, of yeah, just, bring, bring, you know, doing odd things, bringing home strays? Yeah, just, just springing surprises on him. And, but unlike 
uh, most of the other Jack's surprises, Lem stuck around. Mm. And actually, although he was a year ahead of Jack at Choate, he repeated his senior year in order that they graduate together. What do you think he did? He just tanked on his grades? Yeah, I think he- Or are you allowed to just stay at Choate as long until the vibe is good? It was a, it was a, maybe it was a, a scholarship thing. Yeah. Maybe he, he, he decided he was going to change his major, although I, it's high school. I didn't know you could redshirt for a year at Choate. I need to read a separate piece again. Yeah. What I knew a couple of kids that graduated from high school and then went and did their senior year over at a better school and <laughs> then applied to an Ivy league college. Wow. Genius. Yeah. Do they have to pick a new identity at their new school and be like, we just moved here from Nebraska. No, I had the, there was this girl who was a, a year older than me named Lara. I was so crazy about her and she graduated, uh, you know, with good grades, but then she went to a junior college in California for a year and then applied to Yale and got in. And I was like, what a genius move. So she ended up actually being in my high school or my, my college year, uh, because she had pulled this pretty smart, like, I don't think that happens anymore. Ivy league move. No, now I don't know how you get into the Ivy league now. He should have taken a year. Yeah. You can't, you have to be related. Yeah. He should have taken a year off and done the Peace Corps, except it didn't exist yet. It didn't. It should have he, been like, hey, Jack, when you invent the Peace Corps, I'll take a year off and do that. The Peace Corps will, will come up later. Ooh. Um, after they graduated from Choate, they both went uh, to separate colleges. Billings went, or no, I'm sorry. Let me, let me correct that. They both initially went to Princeton together. I didn't know Kennedy was ever at Princeton. Just briefly. And didn't like Princeton, dropped out, went to Harvard. Couldn't it, get in the right eating club. Yeah, Harvard was his secret, or his, uh, his second, his, his, <laughs> his fallback What's school. your backup? <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lem stayed on at, uh, at Princeton, but they went in 1937 together and spent a summer in Europe on a long trip. And Billings graduated from Princeton with a degree in architecture and kind of made a, uh, you know, started to make a career for himself. He was very artistic and interested in art and held a series of jobs, but then World War II started. He had bad eyesight and so couldn't join PT-109. <laughs> uh, Did they give him the option? Now, you know Jack Kennedy, right? Would you like to join PT-109? No, but Joe Kennedy intervened on his behalf and got him admitted to the ambulance corps. Ah. Yeah. But after the war, when Kennedy ran for Congress sort of immediately after the war, Billings quit his job and moved up to Boston to work for Kennedy on his campaign. And by this point in time had become kind of, uh, Kennedy's, uh, uh, by all accounts, not now I'm, now I'm going to kind of confirm your suspicions by all accounts. Everyone around him felt like he was, he was a uh, pretty obsequious to Jack. Well, just because I said he was a Tom Ripley type doesn't mean he's a murderer, scammer, or yeah, it doesn't mean he's going <laughs> to drown him in the Adriatic. I mean, Ripley's sincere too. Ripley's a sure. lonely boy who feels like he's surrounded by richer people, and he can he can pull it off if he becomes like them in a chameleonic way. Although Billings was a was a scion of a right. of an old family, he's not having to put on the uh, the trappings of that name. He, yeah, he knows the he knows the manners. But the two of them, uh, he brought out uh, Kennedy's like fun-loving side, and everybody agreed that Jack 
really was himself with Lem and vice versa. Um, they just, that was where he could really just, they just were, unwind. So they were worried about him. He's a, you know, he's a, he puts a lot of pressure on himself. Maybe they know what politics is like. This is good for him to be able to kind of be his carefree old self sometimes. Yeah. And although Lem is, is, is tall and athletic, uh, he did, he was not into touch football with the brothers. That's and, how you know he's not a Tom Ripley type. He would have pretended to be super into touch football and, and rocking chairs. Yeah, he didn't he didn't like it so much. So it was a it was also a place that Jack could kind of maybe get out of the football game when he was feeling particularly uh ouchy. Invalid. Um Lem was an usher at John's wedding to Jackie, and by some uh accounts worked as a as a yenta, uh, I mean an intermediary. Oh. Uh, to get the two of them together. He was kind of, the two of them reputedly, uh, while they were at Choate, went to New York to lose their virginity together to a sex worker in New York. Um, so it was, you know, they had... Um, she specializes in future presidents. Yeah, and uh, apparently, and she may have, because Lem didn't actually go through with it. He couldn't, mm. he couldn't bring himself to... Uh, to see it go that way. But this is presumably the story of how this, Jack lost his this virginity. Is how Jack lost his virginity. And Lem was, you know, uh, managing his social calendar, which he continued to do throughout their friendship. Is this in any official capacity? Is he ever on salary? I guess if he's working for the campaign, he is. It, he was during that campaign. He then went to Harvard Business School, as everyone did. Uh, at the time in, in America, Literally everyone in America in 1946, almost everyone went to Harvard business 100% admission rate to get an MBA and then became, uh, he, he separated himself a little bit. He started his own career. He worked various jobs, uh, including then becoming an executive at the Emerson drug company during which time he claimed to have invented fizzies tablets like Alka-Seltzer. Yeah. Except it was. At one point in time, Fizzy's Tablets... It's a w- weird humble brag, but hey, by the way, I invented this thing you've never heard of, Fizzy's Tablets. And what's, 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 what's interesting about the humble brag is that a woman by the name of Ruth Millard uh, probably actually invented Fizzy's Tablets, but Lem Billings was the... Was he the executive? He was the CEO. The account guy who took credit for it? And he it? took credit for it. I'm sure it's the only time that happened, never happened in the 50s for that a woman's work was ignored. But you have never heard of Fizzy's Tablets, but some... I've never heard of Lem Billings. Some of our ancient listeners who are now 2,000 years old have heard of them because during their time... Can they sing the jingle still? Maybe. I wish fizzies, I knew the jingle. Fizzy's, uh, During their, their time, Fizzy's Tablets outsold Kool-Aid two to one. Oh, it makes a carbonated drink. Exactly. It's not like a, an acid or anything. No, so it's an Alka-Seltzer, but it's f- but it's lemon-flavored or cherry-flavored. You put it in water, and it makes an effervescent. And I guess if you put enough sugar in an Alka-Seltzer, it would kind of drown out whatever that taste is of the, the gas that makes it fizz. Well, they were, they were, uh, they were hugely popular in the 60s. And then it turned out they caused leukemia. As a matter of fact, they were... Wait, really? They were sweetened with cyclamates oh. and saccharin <laughs> and all this stuff. At one point, they were they did say like, hey, kids, put sugar in your fizzies to make it better. 
as federal regulations on artificial sweeteners and chemical additives became stricter and stricter at one point in the early 70s, and I'm trying to think if I vaguely remember fizzies. Yeah, but, cyclamates were banned, right? Yeah, in the early 70s, it was determined by the company that owned the brand at the time that they could not make fizzies both legal and palatable. Legal and delicious. You could not Choose make it, one. You couldn't make it taste good and have it be legal, so they stopped making it. I bet at that point he was like, uh, you know who invented these? Ruth, Ruth Accord. <laughs> it was Ruth it, it Miller. Wa- it wasn't me. They actually brought back fizzies after they invented NutraSweet. Well, I, I was just thinking the problem is probably that enough sugar to sweeten that much liquid is would make the capsules too big. Yeah. Like you need to have the super sweetening power of these artificial sweeteners. That's right. And and uh, and so NutraSweet then made fizzies popular or possible again. And they were around until 2016. <laughs> so there are surely futurelings listening who have had fizzies and are thinking, what do you mean? Fizzies? Everybody had fizzies. Fizzies missed me on both sides. They, yeah, this does not look familiar to me. They ended in the early 70s when I would have been probably, my mom wouldn't have let me had cyclamates. Plus, what a, have, weird, what a weird way to make a carbonated drink. Well, but, but you, we still use Alka-Seltzer. I, I don't. My mom said when she was growing up that no matter what illness you had in her house, the cure was Alka-Seltzer. My parents were such Alka-Seltzer believers. But it seems like they, um, in the commercials, the, the spicy meatball commercials, you're taking it for indigestion. Yeah. But it's a cold remedy, isn't it? Are there, does Alka-Seltzer just do everything? It does everything. My mom said if you, if you, uh, if you had a, a broken toe, you would take Alka-Seltzer because I guess it had aspirin in it as well. I mean, the, the fizziness of it certainly does not help the cold remedy. The cold version of it just had, you know, acetaminophen and a decongestant or something. You could yeah. you could just take those things. It doesn't need you don't need to drink a like a huge glass of this disgusting tasting. It's the it's fizz. The, it's the plop and the fizz it, I, that brings you relief. I never thought it was fun because oh really? Because you have, well, you have to drink a big thing of bitter water. I I, w- I would rather swallow a pill. I always liked it. I always liked it. But then of course my mom touted it as a as a cure-all. Yeah, there's different kinds. Alka-Seltzer cold, Alka-Seltzer diabetes. Well, there weren't then. <laughs> um, the weird sidetrack that this guy invented uh, yeah. a consumer product he just made up, but okay. But he did have, you know, he did have a life outside of the Kennedy clan, but after... Uh, it's a funny time, by the way, when you can just graduate from Harvard, you're many things, you're an artist, then you can just become an ex- account executive exactly. somewhere because you've got a good chin. Yeah, you, you have a good chin. You invent Fizzy's tablets or you steal it from Ruth Millard. Uh, he left the uh, Emerson Drug Company and went into, guess, 1958. Mm, he went into uh, aerospace. Advertising. Uh, of course. Again, in 1958. A thing you don't have to be talented for. Every American... Became an advertising executive. Briefly. Yeah, briefly. Ken, I've tried a million other deodorants. Literally a million? One million deodorants. On each armpit, so two million total. I mean, I tried... You tried Old Spice, New Spice? Vinegar, I tried baking soda. So I when you say deodorants, you're just saying you put random household stuff yeah, under your arms. the dirt from my garden, pine boughs. I put Lego minifigures up there. But you know, it's native. 
that is the only one that works for me. No, the only deodorant company sponsoring this particular entry in our podcast. That's right. Tell me what you enjoy about Native's products. Well, John. it's aluminum free. Yay. And you don't think about uh, how much aluminum there is in other things like vinegar and pine boughs, but especially in other deodorants. Or aluminum foil. Or aluminum foil. Um, it uh, offers 24-hour odor protection. That's... But here's, here's what's key. Ready? Okay. Ready? ready, ready, ready? It's vegan. <gasps> so, yes. So if you're vegan, you can eat it. It's cruelty-free. This is good. If you're, if you're ecologically responsible in your purchases, Native is the, is the deodorant and, uh, and toiletry line for you. It's made of naturally derived ingredients and no, uh, no antibiotics are, are used in the production of Native. No antibiotics. That's, that's a huge relief for me. And you can choose from over 10 cents. I want you to smell and feel fresh all day long, just like John, with Native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedeo.com slash omnibus or just use promo code omnibus at checkout. That's nativedeo.com slash omnibus. Or use promo code omnibus at checkout for 20% off your first order. 20%? Wow. Now, at this point, they he was completely ingratiated into the Kennedy family. In fact, so much so that Ted Kennedy later on said that he was three years old before he realized that Lem Billings wasn't actually a brother. Oh, wow. So, um, he, he must've he was stayed the, over and yeah, there for every holiday. He was there for, I mean, anytime one of the sisters needed a date to a, to a prom, ah, Lem Billings was the, was the escort. And in 1960, of course, famously John Kennedy ran for president Lem took a leave of absence from his job and worked for uh, his election campaign. And when John was elected, I say John. What? Jack. Jack. When, when Jack was elected. John John Sr. He uh, offered the f- job of first head of the Peace Corps to Lem Billings. Wow. And Lem turned it down. Because he was utterly unqualified. That doesn't, no, that doesn't usually matter for, that for stop, government appointees. No, that but. didn't stop anybody with a good chin in 1960. I'm from a powerful white family. Yeah, I should probably have an ad firm. Then Kennedy offered him ambassador to Denmark. Ooh. Think, is there a sexier job? That's a pretty plum ambassadorship, right? Ambassador to Denmark. Hanging out in Copenhagen in the oh. early 60s, where all the, where all the beautiful blondes are. Incredible. Uh, he declined that job as well. Uh, because he said he didn't want to work for Jack. He wanted, mm. he, he thought he had it worked would, for the campaign twice. He thought it would affect his relationship, but Jack's the president. Everybody now works for Jack. Well, that's right. And I, and I'm not exactly sure. Um, I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah. But, uh, let me pivot for a moment to, um, to the fact that Lem Billings was gay. Whoa, I thought you were going to do a big reveal or something, but you're just going to tell us. I'm just going to go right to the fact that Lem was gay. So and when he's taking all the girls to dances, he's an eligible bachelor. Do they know he'll be a bachelor for forever? Is that? Well, by all accounts. And the, the, the thing is that uh, in the current era, right, as is, I guess, true uh, of current eras of the past, 
<laughs> there's a sense that there that uh, in the dark ages of the 50s there was no such thing as um a gay rights consciousness you know uh, all homosexuals were deeply in the closet it was a time of great violence against openly gay people or even suspected gay people and all of that is true but there also was a lot of uh, you know, there there was a kind of don't ask, don't tell acceptance of gay people in the world. Especially in certain kinds of society, yeah. right? If you travel in certain worlds. And within the Kennedy family, it was just sort of understood and not, um, it was not a problem. They weren't always trying to set him up. No. Or- uh by all accounts, at Choate, uh, there was a lot of, uh, it's all boys school, there were a lot of uh, homosexual encounters. And at Choate, that was not considered, like in a lot of culture at the time, going back to the Greeks, it didn't necessarily mean you were gay. You were just at an all boys school and, and what are you gonna do? a little frottage, a little bit of a uh, little bit of slap and tickle. I mean, would Jack have known before they headed to New York for their appointment with the sex worker? Yeah. So, so a lot of correspondence between them survives and there's a, there's a story of an oft repeated story at, at Choate. The, um, if you wanted to, uh, have a little Congress with one of your classmates, you could write it. You could write the invitation down on a piece of toilet paper. They've got a whole system and then ha- pass the toilet paper on because toilet paper could be easily destroyed. Mm-hmm. You could crumple it up and eat it. You know, there, it was a way of keeping your, your secret. And Lem sent Jack a toilet paper invitation and Jack wrote him back and said, no, and then said, don't write me on toilet paper anymore. I'm not that kind of boy. I mean, this is something I genuinely don't know whether this whole um, subculture at Choate would have been, you know, what we would now consider today closeted gay or I guess possibly bi students. And how many, how, how, how many of the people participating actually were straight kids who, you know, in that kind of a situation where there's less social stigma are like, sure, I'll, I'll try anything once. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the the contemporary recognition that there are a lot of different gender identities and a lot of different, you know, there's this multiplicity. There's a whole spectrum. A spectrum of sexuality that is like a, a very contemporary read on something I think has been known since ancient times, which is that there are a lot of Societal. different. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways to be and you can be. Many, many things. But then when it's time to conform to society, that, that's the principal difference. Back then there was only one or, one or two ways you could, you could then uh, click into the system, whereas now we're expanding that, that um, franchise. It's interesting to see what will happen if essentially, you know, even whatever your example is of a, at a time when we were more, you know, the Athenians or whoever would have been more accepting to certain kinds of homosexual relationships – it's kind of interesting what you will see when, you know, essentially all the governors are off and people really can choose a path. Like maybe for the first time, we'll see what the numbers and the trends actually would look like, you know? 
What's interesting is from the from the beginning of photography up until the 1920s, anytime you took a photo of a group of men at a at a uh, at a mine or at a prep school, uh, they were hanging all over each other. I thought you were going to say they were always naked. They were always naked and hanging all over each what other. What a fun coal mine. Uh, you, you know, you can picture the scene, right? All those Civil War yeah. pictures where men are, are in one another's laps and there's a lot of expression of physical intimacy. And all of that kind of comes to an end in the 1920s when there was a sort of crackdown. Well, it was during a period where there was now suddenly a definition of homosexuality within a, a psychological context. It became yeah. pathologized. A pathology. And now homosocial behavior that could be confused for it was thrown out like the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, you can really see it in photographs of groups of men where suddenly everybody's very erect, not in that way. Everybody's standing straight and not really right. touching each other. And don't, they don't have that, you know, if you think about the opening credits of Cheers, they don't have that hat it's tip sideways, you know, yeah. like leaning on it one. It says no homo at, at the bottom <laughs> of every photo. I was in a movie theater lobby last week and a bunch of kind of big bro-y 17-year-old guys who looked like they were on the swim team or the baseball team or something were all saying their goodbyes for the weekend. And it was all like, hey, man, I love you. I love you too, man. Hey, I love you guys. Love you. Like they were kind of doing a performative. And I was just thinking that never would have, that's commonplace today. And it never would have flown when I was in high school. Right. To say you you loved your friends of the same gender, that's not masculine. Well, do you remember when hugging became uh, acceptable? It yeah, wasn't hugging came that back. long ago. It was 20 years ago that, you know, that people, that guys my age started to hug each other in greeting or in parting. Yeah. And there were, there are still people I know who are a little older than me that when you go in for a hug, they're like, oh, 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 and then the hug is kind of like uncomfortable. I never know. Like, I, you know, I'm a little reluctant to go in because are they a hugger? Well, you and I don't hug. But, you know, we've probably hugged. we see each other all the time, so it's not like, hey, come here. Yeah, that's more of a, ah, I haven't seen you in months. Yeah, I'm hey, glad I didn't know you were going to be here. What's up? Little Kenny climbing my lap. Bring it in. In the, in the 2000s, a writer by the name of David Pitts got access to the correspondence between Jack and Lem and wrote a book that, unfortunately, at least at, least at the time, didn't come out. There was a, an issue, the record label Just like crashed. Lem Billings, it didn't come out. Yeah. When was this in the '80s? Uh, no, this is in 2007. Oh, um, and so it, none of this had ever been known at no point. It was known all along, like right. Charles Bradley and Gore Vidal, like they all knew, um, and they all had sort of catty things to say about Lem. But this was the sort of uh, this was the the moment, you know, scholarship started to introduce this idea, and of course, Lem in some. Uh, Lem is ripe to be a gay icon because he he, he was a he was a zealot. He was prominently placed. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see him in photographs throughout this period, kind of standing behind Jack when he did this amazing thing, walking behind Jackie Kennedy in in Jack's funeral procession. Like he's everywhere, and and, and we can presume there were you know also you know, gay men in the Ulysses S. Grant administration, but yep. this is the first one where there's 
a paper trail that you know extends into the modernity, you know, a, a post Stonewall era. Well, and partly the fifties. I mean, we again we think of the fifties as this completely as a, as a prehistoric time, but the fifties really, and we think of Stonewall in the late sixties as the day that the gay rights movement right. was invented, right? But in the fifties and throughout the sixties, there were there was a, a gay rights movement happening all across the country subversively you know but in San Francisco there were bars that were openly gay that were constantly being raided right but there were there were openly gay people who were agitating and you know uh, uh, gay rights was a big part of the McCarthy era mm-hmm. uh in 1950 there was a period called the lavender scare where there the idea was it's not that, just communists in the state department yeah. but well because gay uh people in the state department would be converted to communism not the other way around oh not not just that they're they're blackmailable but literally that there's some some overlap you know if you're if you're suspicious enough to be into that sort of a thing well then you know you're probably a red so a lot of this it doesn't make a lot of sense in hindsight <laughs> it doesn't my two interests are a lot of the anti-gay laws were actually passed in the 50s in response to uh, gay rights like act- activity. Right. The, right? It, was, it was before it was sub rosa enough that you wouldn't even legitimize wouldn't it by, by enacting a law. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, 1952 was when Alan Turing was prosecuted. Eisenhower passed an executive order that said that Sexual perversion was a was a valid reason to uh, kick somebody out of the army or out of federal service. It was, it was the first time there was a military policy. Yeah. Um, well, no, the military policy had always been that you could, if you were caught uh, in flagrante delecto, that you would be in hot water. And I don't mean in the Hyannisport shower. I mean in big trouble. Um, but so... So Lem, throughout this whole period of being Jack's best pal, was also understood to be Jack's gay pal, gay best pal. And but by by those in the know. By everybody. Uh, every, everybody in the family and also everybody associated with Jack's campaign. It was widely known, in, widely known. In, in Washington and in the Kennedy White House and friends. And-, and I think it was, you know, Jack now is thought of as a... Uh, well, and, and is understood to have been a womanizer, but in the uh, in the Kennedy White House, it was it was also a liberal progressive uh, place for certainly Lem, but also Jack had a lot of credibility uh, in East Coast social circles as somebody very accepting of um, of of a gay person. Did Lem have his own coterie? Was there any kind of like gay mafia in the Kennedy White House? No. So so Lem stayed in the closet mm-hmm. his whole life. Although had relationships, he he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a, a monk. Uh, but never came out. Even unto his dying day in the eighties, uh, he said at one point that it was his friendship with Jack that was the reason he never married and said in an interview, you know, 
what would my life have been like if I had a wife and a kid? Not nearly as exciting as I, as my actual life following John Jack Kennedy around the world. So it's a little bit, you know. That is one sad thing about those closeted. A little bit copium. That, that closeted generation is they had to just say how, how great it was that they were that they were confirmed bachelors. Yeah, oh, you know? I knew a lot of great gals. Mm. So Jack moves into the White House with Jackie, and Lem comes over every weekend. Lem has his own room at the White House and goes with the Kennedys everywhere. Jackie said, Lem's been my house guest since the day I married. Is she a little aggrieved by this? Well, she was, uh, because I think, you know, because he was so obsequious in his, in his absolute love and admiration for Jack that, that people kind of close to them thought he was a little bit of a drip because he wouldn't hear any, any bad mouthing. Although later on in the presidency, uh, Jackie adopted him because he was good company when Jack was off on his, on his own. Like on presidential trips or, yeah, or womanizing? And, uh, both. Oh, okay. So when, you know, when Kennedy would leave on a presidential trip, Lem and Jackie would, would uh, hang out and ride horses and whatnot. Um, in the whole time, they, he never actually had an official White House pass. He would just show up at the gate and everybody knew him and like, Hey, Lem. So he came and go, he came and went through the white house without ever really signing in or <laughs> signing out. So in the archives, there's not, it's not clear. Like he was like, uh, he moved maybe even more, uh, freely than any, uh, than anybody in the administration. Certainly like nobody knows how often he actually was there. He's just always standing in photos and, and you see him, you know, he's, he's standing, you know, he's in the third row here. He's, he's back here. He sat with the family at Jack's inauguration, but no title in the administration. No, he, he was, he sat on the board of the 64 world's fair. He sat on the board of the, uh, national cultural center that became the Kennedy center after Jack's death. So he, he can he he maintained his career in advertising um and he had prominent positions but never one where he became Jack's direct employee uh when Jack was shot he was devastated and is he in love with Jack what do we think i think yes mm, i don't it's, want to jump ahead no it's hard to it's hard to know what lives in the heart of another person, but it sounds like he was in love with Jack. You know what, Ken? As all of America was. We all wept. There's some speculation, and I guess it's the kind of speculation that probably no evidence for, but it depends on how you want to speculate, that they did have um, sexual relations in the— Lincoln in, Bedroom. Maybe right in the center of the Oval Office. No, where Lem... On the eagle. Lem, you know, uh, how would you put it? It's uh, Lem gave service unto Mm. Jack. 
And well, he's the president. And he's the president. You got to serve the, the pleasure of the president. And he also, he also in you know, it's called chote rules. Uh, Jack was able to say, "I'm not gay. I'm just you know." Could he declare that the Oval Office was actually now part of chote? I'm the president. It's part of the Marvel Comics universe because Lem Billings <laughs> later actually provided a service to Batman. So, so despite his, so I guess I was kind of assuming that Jack kind of had a distaste for his habits. But was, you know, you know, love the guy was accepting, but apparently Choate rules continued uh, into the White House. Yeah. They were maybe even, and and at Choate they were occasional partners? Well, this is what we don't know. I mean, the the letters, they never wrote in their correspondence like, boy, that was great last night, Uh, (laughs) you know, when you put a pinky in my bum or whatever. (laughs) Why are you saying that? (laughs) I don't know. That's just what I. That's just what I picture at Choate. Maybe they they probably wrote it on toilet paper. Yes. and then we don't have those notes. That's exactly right. You know, by the end of the '60s, the gay rights movement was making real progress. San Francisco had elected uh, an openly gay person to public office. Um, there were a lot of court cases, and then, of course, uh, Stonewall. During this period, after Jack's death, he became close with. RFK, and then became close with the the next generation, the sons of JFK and Peter Lawford. Um, you know, they all ran. How around. many kids did JFK and Peter Lawford have together? Uh, <laughs> Forty, but that that all got written on toilet. All their birth certificates were toilet paper, and those that next generation of kids, uh, as was the style of the time, were all into drugs and and partying and. Lem, although a generation older, uh, got into drugs. Oh, he wasn't the straight arrow who tried to set him straight. No, he was like, hey, with, you guys know where the party is. Yeah, Bobby Jr. and so forth. And then Lem... He got them all to be against vaccines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he descended into a kind of alcoholic and drug well, life. Enough that the Kennedys kind of started to have to dis- uh, distance themselves from him. After JFK died, of course, it was only worse. I, mean, I don't want to generalize, but it does seem, you know, when you imagine somebody like that who's had to deny a big part of himself, you, you kind of imagine that the uh, the acting out and the addictions and the wild behavior, you know, are a direct result of maybe not have having been able to live authentically his whole life. Yeah, I, I uh, because he never went on record. I mean, he was very jealous of other people showing attention to Jack. And including Jackie, I, I guess they they worked it out. An easy truce, but like he had he had Gore Vidal permanently banned from the White House because they got wow. into a spat in a, in a back room. Ben Bradley, uh, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people um, who were on the receiving end of some of his jealousy had to admit that he was a very important person to Kennedy himself. And so, although they all kind of had catty things to say about him, none could deny that without him, John Kennedy would have been a less effective person and a, and a much more unhappy person. It's interesting. I mean, it merely makes you wonder the, the broader question about how many, you know, these people kind of behind the scenes, the people who shape the president and therefore the administration and the nation and the world um, where it's just a matter of, you know, a conversation at the end of the day. And you never know, you never know who those people are. Yeah. Who the confidants are and who the ones 
you know, that when Kennedy is standing there during the Cuban Missile Crisis, does he say, well, I can't let the bombs fall because a Lem would be so disappointed in me you know i mean right you can't really know well, or but, once the generals get out of the room you know the guy who is able to say do you understand what like is going on here right right i mean i it happens all the time around here where i'm like i don't want to eat diet dr pepper in this house and then i go Ugh, ken would be so disappointed so you are your own len billings i i am my own grandpa <laughs> and my own len billings it's good to have one uh lem died in 1981 his final wish was that the Kennedy sons, the next generation of Kennedys, be his pallbearers and carry his casket. When the the Kennedy family arrived at the graveyard and they all were there to celebrate him, they found that the casket had already been moved to next to the, the grave. Just, just by the funeral home or yeah. something? And so the Kennedy sons all picked up the casket, carried it back and marched it around the graveyard. Oh, okay. For, you know, uh, until they felt like they had properly carried the casket. Um and Ruth at his grave said that he was up in heaven with with Jack and Robert and Jesus and Lem was the one that was decorating the room and making sure the buffet was ready and they were all having a grand old time. So he was sent, he was given a, a little bit stereotypical, like, was, like he's going to be hanging decorations for Jesus. Why? Just because he's gay. Well, that was his job at the white house. He, yeah. because he was so artistic, he party planner, he had really planned all the parties and, and apparently he had bought a JFK, a scrimshaw whale's tooth and John was buried with it. Huh. It went in his casket with it. Wow. I guess I had, I had never heard of him until today, and I guess that's probably true of a lot of these other, you know, the the whispering voices and the friends of Bill and whoever the secret presidential mafias are. I guess and for Ray, for Reagan, maybe they were all Hollywood types. Um, but I don't know who it's. I don't know who yet. Who are the Hollywood conservatives he had in the White House telling him what to do? Jack yeah. Warner or something? No, Jack Warner was a Democrat. I think I think Reagan just listened to his horse. <laughs> And his astrologer. And that concludes Lem Billings. Entry 121.PR2705, certificate number 36906 in the omnibus. Now, Futurelings, our uh, era is much more closely documented than than Lem Billings is. We did not leave our confessions on toilet paper, but rather uh, on social media. Mm. Our every secret lived publicly. Mm. I was at Ken Jennings. John was at John Roderick. Jointly at Omnibus Project. Uh, if electronic mail still exists in your era, we were the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Physical items could be sent to us at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Like this note, which I'm trying to open... Very carefully because I think it's um, I think it's a piece of art by our friend David Chelsea from Portland. Oh, David! But the envelope appears to be part of it, and so I really want to go steam this open. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can use your own water. Your own steam. Do it under your own steam. Steam it up. I wonder if it's a reference to the recent uh, flowers for El- not flowers for Algernon flowers in the attic themed. 
entry about Jillian Hills because look how the envelope has a little um oh, yeah like the equivalent of one of those windows that the outer cover of a paperback had. I think we learned what they were called when we did that show the drop backs or something. You are spending more time opening that envelope than I've seen you ever spend opening mail. Well, I think last time you like got mad at me for ripping open his envelope. Well, yeah, I was a little mad. David says, it's always good to hear you saying nice things about my work through my earbuds while I'm picking blackberries. That sounds like the life down in mm-hmm. Portland, sure picking does. blackberries. Uh, there's a no way. Oh, this is the Jillian Hill show. There's no way I could pass up a chance to depict a fellow illustrator because Jillian Hills became a book illustrator. Right. Particularly when she has done t- topless work on film. So we have, you know, a slightly more revealing than usual David Chelsea work. He drew, oh, and they drew a comic about the um, Battle of Bamber Bridge entry. It's not on a barf bag this time, but it was drawn on a plane trip from Portland to Boston, nothing for the return because his flight was delayed. You know what? We don't judge you for that. We don't, you don't owe us anything, David. I don't know if that's true. You think you think you you should get beautiful illustration work in the mail regularly? Yeah, that's right. It's really funny what's going on in this entry. There's a lot going on here. Here's James Baldwin. Here's Robert E. Lee. Author Anthony Burgess. A throwback to the Private Nun episode. There's a lot going on on that George piece of paper. Orwell. I mean, yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, if you thought the Watchman nine-panel grid was busy, this is a 36-panel grid on both sides of the paper. Oh, and it says Alaska Boarding Pass. Is it really? He was in 2060. Apparently, now we know that uh, David is an aisle seat guy. Yeah. Thank you so Rightfully much. So. Thank you so much for saying that. And the, the added touch of making Jillian Hills peek through the envelope in the style of her influential... Eighties paperbacks is fantastic. So if you're sexy. a if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can see all the beautiful art and weird uh, 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 arcana that we're sent. That's not the word ephemera that we're sent mm-hmm. uh, by going to Patreon.com/slash/OmnibusProject and choosing to support the show. You can also find the Futurelings online uh, anywhere that word returns any search results at all. Facebook, there's a subreddit, I think. Track them down. They're having fun right now without you. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. If providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.